This morning, I want to enlighten you to the wonderful world of icebergs. Yes, icebergs. We will uh, figure out how that connects to our sermon in a minute. But before we get there, let's get the facts out of the way. An iceberg is a chunk of ice floating in the ocean. I guess it could also be fresh water. A chunk of ice floating in water that is at least five meters across. That's 16 feet. It's uh, on now. So, an iceberg is a chunk of ice floating in the water that is 5 meters across or 16 feet for all you imperial measurers. And there are uh, pretty big chunks of ice, right? I mean, 16 feet across. It's definitely bigger than your car. You know, like, you wouldn't want to run into it with a boat. You wouldn't want to hit it and sink. Um, But there are many classifications of icebergs. They're not one-size-fits-all. There are smaller pieces of ice, too, that aren't technically icebergs. Any guesses to what they might call a small chunk of ice? Uh, No. But that is what you call a chunk of ice that is split off. So in some ways you are correct. But there is an actual name for a small chunk of ice. An ice cube? That's a good guess. Any other guesses? Okay, the uh, very um, professional and uh, studious scientific community chooses to call smaller pieces of ice bergy bits. And even smaller pieces than that are growlers. I have no idea why they chose bergy bits or growlers, um, which they seem like ridiculous names to me, but that is what they are called. And there's also the name itself, iceberg, which comes from the Dutch uh, background that literally means ice mountain, which seems like a good name. So there's a lot that goes into uh, tracking icebergs as well. Of course, they don't track anything that's smaller than 5,400 square feet, which is about half the size of this church. So if you're an iceberg and you're about half the size of this church, you're going to get tracked so that people don't run into you. And that's a big chunk of ice. And they, the uh, sizing goes all the way up to a uh, colossal large iceberg, which is the largest classification. But from there... Uh, it kind of gets out of hand. So a large colossal iceberg is anything that's 240 feet high and longer than 670 feet. But here's where it gets crazy. So the largest iceberg in the world right now is iceberg A76. I'm sure you guys already knew that. But do you guys have any idea how big A76 is? Any guesses? No guesses. One million square miles. Not quite that big. Uh, For reference, Rhode Island is about 1,200 square miles. Okay, I'm going to just give it to you. Iceberg A76 is 1,668 square miles. That is Iceberg A76 um, right there. And it is bigger than Rhode Island. It is. And this is a modest-sized iceberg in comparison to the largest we've ever seen. 2000, we had the record-setting iceberg, B-15, of course. And it reached a a size of 4,500 square miles, just floating in the ocean. And its ice was a half-mile thick. And it uh, 
was larger than Jamaica, which is the largest island in the Caribbean Sea. It was a really big chunk of ice. And perhaps the most common iceberg fact um, is that about an eighth of the iceberg sticks out of the top of the water, and 90% of the iceberg's mass is below the water. And uh, if you've ever seen um, the Disney movie Encanto, you know, where Louisa's song, you know, surface pressure, and she crushes the iceberg, and this is a little tip, and you get the whole iceberg underneath. If you haven't seen Encanto, ignore what I said. It doesn't make sense to you. But uh, you might be looking at the screen and reading the title of our sermon here, Tour of the Torah, Genesis, and wondering why we're talking about icebergs. And here's why. Um, a lot of what we talk about here at church is um, stuff from the New Testament, which is obviously not a bad thing. The New Testament's filled with uh, Jesus' sayings, the actions of his disciples, the formation of the church, a lot of other really important truths. But all of what we read in the New Testament has to come from somewhere, right? It has to be uh, supported by something. So I'm calling the, ice, the New Testament the tip of the iceberg, right? And it is supported by what is underneath, by what came first. So in order to get a fuller understanding of the Bible, not just the New Testament, but also other parts of the Old Testament, you have to understand the base on which it is floating, the foundation on which it is built. And you can't understand the New Testament without the beginning. So for the next four weeks, we're going to su- figure out what is supporting the iceberg of the Bible. What, what is it floating on? Um, so for the next four weeks, I want you to unpack your tent, start the fire, set up camp, throw a marshmallow on, because we are going to be sticking in the Torah. All right, so let's start by answering the obvious question, what is the Torah? Let's get that out of the way. So the Torah is the Hebrew word for law. And don't think of it quite like the laws that we have here in the United States. It's not like a Jewish document that records how fast you can ride your donkey in a residential zone. It's, think of it more of like God's instructions, okay? Um, His direction, if you will. His covenant with his people and, and how he wants them to live. And how he wants to use them to show himself to the rest of the world. And we'll get into that bit more in the coming weeks. But you should also know something else about Torah. It is also commonly referred to as the Law of Moses or the Pentateuch. Um, Penta meaning five and tuch meaning book. Which is a perfect name because the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The, in Deuteronomy, the E becomes, comes before the U. I always mess that up. So just a reminder, if you're spelling Deuteronomy, the E comes before the U. So if you ever hear anybody refer to Torah, the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses, they're all talking about the same thing, the first five books of the Bible. Now, traditionally, uh, the Jewish people split their Bible into three different categories. So the first category is the Torah, first five books, then you also have the prophets, and then you also have the writings. And what Jewish people call their Bible is what we call the Old Testament. It's the same set of words, uh, the same set of 66 books, although they smash a couple of them together like kings, so they actually have less than 66 books, but the same amount of words. Same words. We call that the Old Testament. They call that their Bible. But the broad category that you can use to refer to all of it is Scripture. Uh, that's God's 
divinely given word. So you can call all of it scripture. And when we say scripture as Christians, we mean the New and Old Testament. But if someone uses the word scripture in the New Testament, they're talking about the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Because there obviously weren't any New Testament records. Like the Gideon Bible hadn't come out yet with the New Testament printed. So when they're writing the New Testament and they say scriptures, they're referring to the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking into the Torah and what better place to start than Genesis at the beginning. And we spent a little time in Genesis last week for Mother's Day. We were talking about Sarah um, and Abraham. But I want to look at the broad strokes of the books. And in fact, that's our goal uh, for this whole series is to take a tour of the Torah to see the big picture of what God is doing through his books and through his books and how they tie together and how they hold up and support the rest of the Bible. So if you haven't already, now would be a great time to open up Genesis. Um, and broadly speaking, Genesis is split up into two different categories, two different sections. So you have section one, which is chapters one through 11. And this is a lot of big picture ideas. This is about uh, God's relationship with the whole world, right? And, and how he creates things and things like that. And then in the second section, which is chapters 15 through, uh, excuse me, chapter 12 through 50, you uh, start to focus in. And it starts to become more of a narrative, more of a storyline. And you're following one uh, family. So there's kind of the separation between the first section and the second section. But they are tied together, and we'll get there in a minute. So let's go ahead and start painting the broad strokes of Genesis. And let's read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So although we don't know exactly when the beginning was, we do know that it was in the beginning, and we know that God was there. And God created everything. From this formless and dark void, light came. And chapters 1 and 2 goes on to paint this amazing picture of how God brings into existence all the amazing things that we see. In the first verse, we go from nothing to having all of the stars and galaxies and planets and black holes and supernova and neutron stars and all the other bits of it. From nothing to that in the first verse. And then we also get the earth, which is the nice rock that you and I reside on. And then he makes light. And then he separates the darkness from the light. And he separates the waters from the dry land so that we have a place to live. And he goes on to create everything. He fills the earth from the deepest oceans up all the way to the sky. And God then creates humans. He creates Adam and Eve. And these aren't just names that are meaningless. In Hebrew, Adam literally means humanity or mankind. And Eve's name literally means life. So he creates humans and he creates life. And it's with these two people that God charges all the earth. He puts them in a place of responsibility to take care of the paradise that he creates. 
And he plans to spread humanity through them to all the earth. But there is one rule in paradise, right? You guys have heard this story perhaps before, that you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God creates all of this, and he says, don't eat of that tree. That's a big no-no. And one of the first things recorded in Scripture is Adam and Eve eating of that tree and doing the big no-no. And that's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. It, it, breaks, it breaks what God created. Look at Genesis chapter 3, 22 through 24. This is what Genesis says after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. For he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he sent Station the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the beginning of our problems, the beginning of sin. Adam and Eve get kicked out, and instead of doing what God wants, they decide to do what humans usually decide to do, which is their own thing, to make their own way. And now that this world is broken, the plants don't produce like they used to, childbirth, is now painful, there are now droughts, there are now floods, there is now death. And from here, through chapter 11, we really start to see the downward spiral of humanity. Things just keep getting worse. Cain kills Abel, and then we get people like Lamech in chapter 4, who collects for himself wives and riches, and he says that he is even worse than Cain. He is even multiple times more vengeful than Cain could ever be, boasting about how bad he was. You get stories like Noah, where God is grieved and he decides to start over with Noah and he floods the earth. But right after the flood's over, humanity gets right back to their wickedness. And the last story in the first section of Genesis is the Tower of Babel, which is the ultimate effort of humanity to make their own way to try to become God, to reach the heavens. And God obviously sees that that's a bad idea. So he confuses their language and scatters them to different tribes. But at the end of chapter 11, we start to shift gears a little bit. And we focus in on one family line. I'm going to spare you guys the genealogies, but there's nine generations starting, um, and they lead all the way to Abraham. So there's nine generations, or Abram, but we refer to him as Abraham. So these genealogies, although they might seem boring, are in fact the glue that ties the first 11 chapters of Genesis to the next 12 through 50, the second section. And this is when God really starts to do his big thing. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is the promise that really starts the ball moving. 
that the ball of God's ultimate gold, what he's doing, he, he pushes it off with this promise to Abraham and his wife Sarah. And he promises them a child and this nation, and they make a lot of mistakes. We looked at that last week. And despite their mistakes, God continues to work through them. And eventually, they give birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob uh, has two sons, or excuse me, he goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Esau. So Jacob and Esau here are the two sons of Isaac, but Esau's older. And Jacob wants the inheritance. Just to show you how messed up this family is, he uh, lies to his older father, steals the inheritance, and uh, ends up getting the same promise from God that Abraham and Isaac did, that he was going to be a part of this family that blesses the earth. So then Jacob has 12 sons. He shows Joseph favor. You know, he has the coat of many colors. And uh, they don't like this, his brothers, so they end up selling him into slavery. And they fake his murder, and his dad, Jacob, also known as Israel, thinks that he's dead. So Joseph gives a shift off down to Egypt. And while he's there, his life uh, is filled with twists and turns, things get hard, but eventually he makes himself... um, to the second highest position in Egypt, right under Pharaoh. And I think that it's in the life of Joseph that we actually really get to see the point of Genesis. We get to see it all come together. So Joseph is at this high position, and he's prepared for this famine, and the famine eventually comes. And guess who shows up on his doorstep? All of his brothers who are um, who have plotted to kill him, who have sold him into slavery, And they think that they're probably going to be killed themselves. So Joseph's in this powerful position now. Um, But he doesn't. He actually is kind to them. And he blesses them with food and care. And eventually, uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, dies. And then this really makes his brothers nervous. Because now that Jacob is dead, they think that Joseph might lash out at them. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to see what Joseph's brothers say. Joseph, or Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the, all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sins, for they did to you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brother also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, Do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
So I believe that in these words right here, what we just read, we find one of the main points of Genesis. Which is, what people keep intending for evil, God keeps turning into good. And it's through this foundational book that the nature of God begins to be revealed to us. You see, despite all the mess-ups, the downward spiral of humanity, the many failures of the people that God made promises to, the evil plots, and the altogether disregard for God's plans, God is still working towards good, and he is still working towards fixing the root of these problems, which is sin. So when we take a step back and we look at Genesis and we see the first section of how God creates everything and it's broken, and then we see this narrative of these messed up people, but God keeps working, up, working through them, we begin to realize how good God actually is and how great he is and what he's planning and then how small and messed up we are. God creates things good and, and we mess it up. And when I say we, I'm talking about humanity. Obviously, I wasn't there in the garden with Adam. I, didn't, uh, I wasn't a co-conspirator to the fruit eating. But really, I, we all are, as humanity, kind of have the same nature. So God made things good, and, and we mess it up. And when God started over with Noah, guess what? We mess it up again. And God gave us gifts, but instead of cherishing them, we use them for our own glory. We, we use them for our pride. God made promises to us, but we didn't deserve that. And we ended up breaking the promises. God set forth a plan that we didn't follow. God created a people for himself. And we didn't see the scope of what he was doing and decided to go our own way. And in fact, many people that God chose directly opposed his plans by doing what they thought was right. And despite all of that evil, God is still good. And that's really, I think, one of the main things that we should take away. That God is good despite our evil. I think that's one of the main focuses of Genesis. It's the foundational principle that the rest of Scripture builds off of. Because if God isn't good, our faith doesn't work. There is no salvation if God isn't good. There is no Jesus if God isn't good. There's no life if God isn't good. So Genesis sets the stage for us to realize that Yahweh is not like the other so-called gods. He isn't petty. He isn't prideful. He isn't temperamental. He isn't angry. Rather, he is forgiving. He's patient. He is kind and just. Second thing I think Genesis teaches us is that God brings us to him. So, if God keeps bringing us back, despite us keep running away, he's the one that keeps reaching out. Even we, I mean, if we looked at the entire Bible, we'd be here all day, all day talking about how God keeps bringing us back to him. But even in the first 50 chapters, just in Genesis, we can see God doing that over and over and over again with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants and Joseph and all the provision that God does. And this is going to be a major theme through the rest of the Torah. On many occasions, God is going to bring us back to him when we run away. Keep your eyes open for that. Number three, God is both powerful and personal. In the book of Genesis, we get kind of this major contrast, right? 
We have God's nature, his ability to create. He creates everything. He, he, the best thing I've ever built is a kitchen table, okay? And I would not even know where to begin if I had to create a tree. But God doesn't just create one tree. He creates the laws of physics and the atoms and the properties of light and all of everything else that goes into making all of this stuff. So we get that God, the God who creates everything. And at the same time, he cares about the smallest details in our lives. This is a pretty big contrast between there were the heavens and the earth and I'm going to make a promise to you. That's a lot of ground for God to cover. It really shows his immensity. God that creates everything has the power and the desire to deal with us as individuals. So remember that. The next time that you're in a hard time, it's going to give you strength. And it will also inspire you to joy. So we've only started to look at the Torah, just the beginning. But I I hope you look forward to hearing more about the amazing work that God is doing through his people and through his books. I know traditionally that the books of Torah, especially books like Leviticus, are looked at as boring books, right? So they're like, oh, it's my reading plan. I got to get through Leviticus. It's time to, you know, stick your feet in the mud and man up and read Leviticus and all the genealogies and rules. But I don't think they're boring at all. And I assure you that if you look at the big picture and you really realize what is going on in these books, there's nothing boring about it because God is literally changing the world through these people. I hope that you... uh, Get excited to come back and hear about how God has written down what he wants us to know. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for the written word that you've given us that we can study and look at. I pray that you allow us to understand the foundations of your word. They allow us to look at the laws that you gave your people and realize what you were doing through them. So in your son's name we pray. Amen.